weary and need rest, to all who mourn and long for comfort, to all who fail and desire strength, to all who sin and need a savior. Emmanuel Church opens wide her doors with a welcome from Jesus, friend of sinners. Now here's this week's message. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud, all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them, since they were struck down in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, so that we will not desire evil things as they did. Don't become idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink, and got up to party. Let us not commit sexual immorality, as some of them did. And in a single day, 23,000 people died. Let us not test Christ as some of them did, and were destroyed by snakes. And don't complain as some of them did, and were killed by the destroyer. These things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our instruction, on whom the ends of the ages have come. So whoever thinks he stands must be careful not to fall. No temptation has come upon you except what is common to humanity. But God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way out of it, so that you may be able to bear it. Now our sermon passage. So then, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. I'm speaking as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I am saying. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a sharing in the blood of Christ? The bread, uh, the bread that we break, is it not a sharing in the blood body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, since all of us share the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar? What am I saying then? That food sacrificed to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No. But I do say that what they sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot share the Lord's table and the table of demons. Or are we provoking the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? This is the word of the Lord. To consider idolatry, I want to quote Christian author Beverly Chalmers. <laughs> That's my wife, by the way. <laughs> she wrote this, there's a memory seared into my mind from when I was 12 years old. I was watching from the back door of our home as my father brought out an axe. Laying prostrate on the ground was a three foot tall, intricately designed statue of Buddha carved from wood. The axe went flying through the air from over my father's shoulder, landing with a loud thwack. The first stroke severed the statue's head. 
another thwack, and then another. Pieces of red wood went flying all over the yard. Finally, all that was left were indiscernible remnants of what was once our family idol. The scene also gave me a lasting impression that life for my dad and for our family would never be the same. Repentance for the Christian involves the slaying of idols. I'm not sure if you come from a family that practices idolatry like my wife's family once did. Perhaps you have a scene like this in your memory of seeing parents come to know Christ and realizing that obeying Christ and worshiping Christ was incompatible with the worship of idols. The passage that we're looking at today from 1 Corinthians chapter 10 is part of a longer section in 1 Corinthians where the Apostle Paul is dealing with the subject of idolatry for the young church in the city of Corinth. And the Apostle Paul in our section is dealing with a much larger subject, that of what to do as Christians living in an idolatrous culture when there is much idolatry going on all around what to do with the very practical subject of food that is meat that had been offered to idols. If we have meat being sold in the marketplace that had been offered as part of sacrifices in a pagan temple, should Christians eat such meat? Paul is dealing with this subject and he spends multiple chapters dealing with it and looking at it from many different angles. He begins in chapter 8 with dealing with the question of what to do when different Christians have different convictions about what to do about food offered to idols. And what do you do if perhaps all of the meat in the whole city may have at some point been offered as a sacrifice to an idol because that's where meat came from. What should you do? Well, Paul, back in chapter 8, says, well, he doesn't give a ruling on this from the Lord. He says, you need to learn to love each other by dealing with people with different convictions. And not simply being concerned with what it is that you may feel free to do as a Christian. You need to be concerned about loving your brothers and sisters in Christ. And Paul says at the end of chapter 8, if it means that I will not leave my young, weak Christian brother or sister back into idolatry, I'm willing to be a vegetarian if that's what it takes. I'm willing to live a life of sacrifice for the good of my brothers and sisters in Christ. In chapter 9, he continues this theme of Christian freedom. That's what we have been looking at over the last few weeks in 1 Corinthians 9. And he looks at Christian freedom from different angles. As we saw last week, his concern at the end of chapter 9 was realizing that in our Christian freedom, that we have been free, but we are able to use that freedom to serve others. And he says that he has made himself a slave to Christ and even a slave to the world, willing to do whatever it takes to save some. But he also says being free means we still are called to strive in the Christian life because there is a reward to be won and we must persevere if we're going to win it. Now in chapter 10, he returns to the theme of idolatry again. Now, since this is Family Sunday, we are flip-flopping our passages. The first passage in chapter 10 deals with sexual immorality. We're going to deal with that next week when the children are in their children's service. This week we're going to be looking at the passage after this where he deals more specifically with this command in verse 14. So then, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. As we consider this passage, if you're taking notes, our main point is this from the passage. 
Flee from idolatry, for we will all face the jealous God. Flee from idolatry, for we will all face the jealous God. We'll have two points. Point number one, flee from idolatry. Point number two, the jealous God. No surprises there. But it is my prayer that as we look at this passage, that we would have eyes to see the idolatry that exists in each of our hearts. And that we would not only be able to see those things, but that we would have hearts with God's help to turn from idols in repentance, to worship the true and living God alone. Point number one, flee from idolatry, beginning in verse 14. So then, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. First century Corinth was a pagan place, a place full of all kinds of immorality and sin. It was a virtual sin city. You can imagine it, a, a shipping port city where sailors were coming and going, where much money and wealth and material possessions were coming in and out of that city. It was a very prosperous city, but it was also a very immoral city. All kinds of sin could be had. All kinds of sin could be pursued in Corinth. The city was so immoral, to be Corinthian actually was a, a way of saying that you were a sinful and a sexually immoral person. It was, it was not that different from some places here in the 21st century world. And yet, Paul is not lowering his standards and grading on the curve when it comes to God's people. No, as he establishes the church of Jesus Christ there in Corinth, the standard of being holy is the same for all Christians everywhere. And what he's writing to in this letter to the Corinthian church, this young church, is calling them to the standard that God has for them, to be the holy people of God in a light, in a dark world. He has told them back in chapter 6 that they must flee from something else. He says that they need to flee from sexual immorality. 1 Corinthians 6. What was connected, as we'll see next week, if Christ doesn't return between now and then, what we will see next week is that sexual immorality and idolatry were linked in Corinth. So as Paul was dealing with sexual immorality in chapters 5 and 6, chapter 5, he's talking about church discipline, what do you do with a member of your church who's in unrepentant sexual sin? Well, he says you must, as a holy people of God, put such an unrepentant sinner out of the church. And then in chapter 6, he's telling them they must not go to the pagan temple and have sex with prostitutes. This is not at all permitted. Well, here he's telling them they need to flee from idolatry as well. That language of fleeing from idolatry, it may be in Paul's mind the picture of Joseph from Genesis. You remember Joseph being tempted. And what did he do? Did he wait around? Did he think about it? Did he put himself in the way of danger? No, what did he do? away. Same thing is what we should do when it comes to idolatry. We need to flee from it. Now he uses some illustrations here in this first section to explain why idolatry and the worship of God are incompatible. And he uses some interesting arguments. The first argument is an argument from the Lord's Supper. Look there at verse 15. 
He says, I'm speaking to sensible people. You judge for yourselves what I am saying. And then he uses an illustration of the Lord's Supper. Look what he says in verse 16. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a sharing in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a sharing in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, since all of us share the one bread. Paul here is talking about the category of food being a symbol of fellowship. Of a meal being a symbol of participation with one another. Now, I grew up Baptist. My dad is a Baptist pastor. And food and fellowship were always linked. If there was going to be a fellowship gathering, what could we assume? Well, there was going to be food. Now, this isn't just Baptists who've understood this. This is human. This is part of what God has hardwired into us. If you sit down and share a meal together, you are going to be bound together with the people that you eat with. It's only natural. It's a wonderful thing for Christians to be spending time around meals with one another. We encourage us, if you can, to come early on Sundays. We have a fellowship meal here. Thank you, Daniel, for picking up all this food from Costco today so that we could have a fellowship meal together. Let me encourage you to come early every week. At noon, we have a fellowship meal together, and sharing that time around food does more than just get us in the same place. Sharing that meal causes us to remember time and again that we are family, and that we have, through Christ, been united into a spiritual family, that of the church. Now, to an even more marked degree, the Lord's Supper does this as well. It symbolizes for us what it is that we participate in together, that of a relationship with God through Christ, through his death and through his resurrection, through the shedding of his blood on the cross and breaking of his body for, for sinners. What Paul says here is the meal of the Lord's Supper helps us to understand that eating a meal is a participation in something. And he says when you share the Lord's Supper, you are saying more than just that I'm a Christian, you're saying that you are a part of God's people through Christ. See what he says there. The cup of blessing we bless, is it not a sharing in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a sharing in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, since all of us share in the one bread. This is teaching on the Lord's Supper for us. This is really helpful teaching. The Lord's Supper isn't just a nice thing that Christians do. It is a unifying ordinance. It reminds us of what Christ has done for us. But it actually causes us to remember again the participation that we have together in Christ and who we are as the body of Christ together. And it all points forward to the meal that one day we will have with Christ. On the last day that is the beginning of that final day the eternal state when we will be united with Christ and with all of his people forever. The Lord's Supper is a picture for us of the reality that sharing a meal is a reminder of fellowship and of participation. He uses a second illustration, that of the people of Israel. Look at verse 18. Consider the people of Israel. Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar? Now, if you'll remember, the Lord's Supper was instituted on that last night that Jesus had with his disciples, and it was a Passover meal. 
It was a meal that was celebrated after they sacrificed the lambs in Egypt. If you want to read the book of Exodus again to remind yourself of this. They killed lambs. They took that blood. They put it on the mantles of their doors as a sacrifice for sinners so that when the angel of wrath came, they would pass over. The angel would pass over those houses that had the sacrifice. They then sat and ate a meal. And eating that meal was a participation in that sacrifice. And this practice would continue in the tabernacle and then in the temple, in uh, the Old Testament, the Old Covenant people of God. And eating the meal, eating the meat of the sacrifice afterwards was a participation in the altar and in the sacrifice. Now, why is Paul using these illustrations? That of the Lord's Supper and that of the people of God in the Old Testament participating in altar sacrifices. Well, he's going to get to that. He's showing that the food you eat in a pagan city with food offered to a pagan idol may imply that you are participating in the worship of that idol and you need to be very careful that you do not miscommunicate what it means to be a Christian in a dark world. But even worse than that, you need to be sure that you are not wandering away from God back into a participation of the worship of idols or even more, as he says here, the worship of demons. Look at verse 19. What am I saying then? That food sacrificed to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No. Now he's picking up language from chapter 8. If you remember back in chapter 8, there were the stronger brothers or sisters. There were the weaker brothers and sisters. The stronger brothers were the ones who said, oh, what is an idol? An idol is nothing. It's just a piece of wood. It's just a hunk of metal. An idol isn't anything. Paul agrees with that statement. I was reading this week in Isaiah, trying to find an Old Testament scripture reading passage. And if you read through Isaiah 40 to 48, you'll find God over and again making fun of the pagan nations who worship idols and laughing at them. He literally says, these foolish people, they cut down a tree and they cut down logs. And from the same tree, from the same log, they chop it in half. And half of that log they shape into an idol and they worship it. And the other half they burn in the fire and keep themselves warm. And they don't realize how ridiculous this is. It's just a piece of wood. An idol is nothing. It's not a true God. It's false. But what does he say in verse 20? It's true, idols are nothing, but what they sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. Now Paul adds another wrinkle to his argument in these three chapters, 1 Corinthians 8, 9, and 10. The reality that while on one level an idol is nothing, on another level behind idol worship is the machinations of Satan and his demonic forces. You see, what is behind idol worship throughout history, throughout the world today, is the darkening work of Satan to hide the truth the light of the gospel from human beings. And what is behind idol worship is a service to, a worship of demons and of ultimately Satan himself. 
Paul is concerned that these people in their laxity would not be tempted back into idolatry or at the very least not confuse people about what it means in terms of being a Christian that we worship the true God and the true God alone. And his concern is that they would not go to the temple itself and perhaps eat meals in the temple itself thinking, oh, it doesn't matter what I do when it comes to the worship of my friends, of my family, of my neighbors. I can go to the temple. I can go and eat food at the temple. An idol is nothing. I can do, I can do what these people are inviting me to do. And in the process, at the very least, confusing people but at the very worst, perhaps, being drawn back into idol worship and back under the blindness of Satan and the demonic realm. See what he says there at the end of 20. I do not want you to be participants with demons. He then returns to the subject of the Lord's Supper in verse 21 and says, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot share in the Lord's table and... The table of demons. You see, the worship of the true God and the worship of idols are incompatible. As much as we might try to have some kind of syncretistic hodgepodge of a religion where we can add lots of things together, no, the worship of God and the worship of idols, the worship of God and the worship of demons are incompatible. Paul is concerned here that the holy people of God are devoted to God and God alone and not in any way participating in idol worship. Now, I'm not sure what kind of application some of us in this room may need to make from this. It may be that you come from an idolatrous family. It may be that you come from a family that in some ways still worships idols, perhaps like my my in-laws literally been to a graveside with my in-laws while some of their relatives were attempting to do worship to ancestors in Taiwan. I'm not sure what this might mean in terms of the specific application that you make of it, but I need to make at least one application here. It may be that you need to do the very awkward thing, if you're a Christian and you come from a family of idol worshipers, to make a clear distinction of what it means that you are now following Jesus. And it may mean that you need to say no to certain family gatherings because it means that in participating in that family gathering, you will perhaps participate in idol worship in some way. By the association itself, miscommunicate what it means to be a Christian and the truths about the holy God that we serve, the jealous God that we serve. If this is the case, and if you perhaps have questions about this, I'd be happy to talk with you more afterwards, I'm sure. Some cases may be confusing. Paul clearly understands that there's a lot of different situations going on in the city of Corinth, and he's talking about this in different pieces in these three chapters. But let me encourage you, if you are a Christian, to do whatever it takes to make it very clear with your life that you worship God, and that the worship of the true God means that you cannot and will not worship idols. It may be like Jesus calls some of his followers to do. It may mean that you need to hate father and mother, brothers, sisters, not literally hating them, but saying no to them in such a way that it feels like hate, feels like you're rejecting them by saying, no, I I worship the one true God. I, I cannot be involved in this 
religious activity may be perceived as hate. But as Jesus puts it, if you deny me before men, I will deny you before my Father in heaven. But if you confess me before men, I will confess you before my Father in heaven. We encourage you to take this seriously. For many of us, it may be that there are not literal, physical idols that we need to turn away from, but there are perhaps those idols of the soul that are behind the physical idols of so much idol worship throughout history and even today throughout the world. It may be that worship for you in terms of idolatry is not a physical idol, but it is those soul idols. The uh, American novelist David Foster Wallace, who was not a Christian, by the way, said this, which is pretty poignant. He said this in an address that he gave to a graduating class. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. He says this, whatever it is that you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. You will never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and allure. You will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. On one level, we all know this stuff already. The trick is to keep this truth in your daily consciousness. Worship power. You will feel weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect. Being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid. You'll end up feeling a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. Here's a non-Christian talking about the reality that all of us worship something. The question isn't whether we worship, it's what we worship. God, as he brought his people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt, gave them the Ten Commandments. And do you remember the first commandment? I am the Lord your God, Exodus 20, verse 2, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. Commandment number one. You shall have no other gods beside me. It does begin with that in Deuteronomy. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But commandment number one, you shall have no other gods before me. And commandment number two, connected to it, do not make an idol for yourself in the shape of anything in the heavens above or on the earth below or in the waters under the sea. This is echoed in our previous scripture reading from Deuteronomy 4. He says, do not bow and worship to them. Do not serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, bringing the consequences of the father's iniquity on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing faithful love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. I want you to turn really quickly for a cross-reference on this in terms of idolatry, in terms of this command to flee from idolatry. Turn to Acts 19. Acts 19, we have some of Paul's ministry at the city of Ephesus that he went to after Corinth. 
You'll notice in, the, uh, in this chapter, a couple of things happen after Paul preaches the gospel in Ephesus. The first thing that happens after people are coming to know Christ is that there is a repentance that leads to a, a burning of books. Look at verse 18 in Acts 19. If you look back at verse 17, you see many were uh, becoming afraid because of some of the miracles that were going on. And you see that the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high esteem in the city of Ephesus. Look at verse 18. Many who'd become believers came confessing and disclosing their practices. And while, and while many of those who had practiced magic collected their books and burned them in front of everyone. And they calculated their value and found it to be 50,000 pieces of silver. In this way, the word of the Lord spread and prevailed. You see, first of all, that these people hear about Jesus Christ. They hear the truth that we must worship the one true God and him alone. And they realize we can no longer be giving into our occult practices that we used to be involved in. Which was literally using demonic forces to do evil things in this world. They came and brought those books even though they were worth a lot, they didn't sell them off. They burned them all. Even though they were worth 50,000 pieces of silver. You see here that Paul is preaching about God and the reality the worship of God means you cannot as well be involved in anything demonic. But secondly, a second thing happened, verse 21. Um... Sorry, starting in verse 23, after that time there was a major disturbance about the way for a person named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, provided a great deal of business for the craftsmen. And when he had assembled them, as well as the workers, engaged in this type of business, he said, men, you know that our prosperity is derived from this business, that of idol making. You see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this man Paul has persuaded and misled a considerable number of people by saying... That gods made by hand are not gods. Not only do we run a risk that our business may be discredited, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be despised and her magnificence come to the verge of ruin. The very one, all of Asia and the world, worship. And then a huge riot breaks out in Ephesus. Uh, Tim Keller, speaking on this passage said that Paul showed that to faithfully preach the gospel to a culture, you must expose its idols. This is what Paul did here in Ephesus. He exposed their false idols. And you notice there was quite a reaction when the financial prosperity of the city, when the goddess of the city, Artemis, and when the business of making idols was challenged, there was chaos. But if we are to be faithful in preaching the gospel to our culture, we must expose our idols. Now it may be for us, here in 21st century West, here in Southern California, in 2023, that many of us are not worshiping literal idols of wood or of metal or of stone. That does not mean that we do not serve idols. Calvin said that the human heart is an idol-making factory. Our hearts, he says, 
are a perpetual idol forge, forging out idols. They come from our hearts. Though they may not be physical idols, those physical idols may be a representation of the idolatry behind those idols, the things that we go to those idols for. God in Ezekiel 14 says this, Son of man, these men, he's talking about the people of Israel, the elders of Israel, he says, Son of man, these men have set up idols in their hearts and have put their sinful stumbling blocks in front of themselves. You see that the concern here is not simply whether or not you physically, bodily, get down and worship an idol made of wood or stone or metal, whether or not you have set up an idol in your heart. Now think of that image inside your heart, having a shrine, and inside your heart, inside of that shrine, you set up an idol of something that you worship, something that you worship more than God. Tim Keller, in his really helpful book, Counterfeit Gods, The Empty Promises of Money, Sex, and Power, and the Only Hope That Matters, defines an idol this way. It's a helpful, helpful definition. What is an idol? Anything more important to you than God. Anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and your imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. That's an idol. How can you identify such idols? How can you tell if you're worshiping a counterfeit God? Well, Keller says, Counterfeit God is anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would hardly feel worth living. If you imagine that thing being taken away, you would think, my life is no longer worth living. A helpful way of diagnosing what some of those idols might be. Um, John and Vincent, can I ask you to hand these out? from a Puritan, Pastor David Clarkson. It's from a sermon that he gave called Soul Idolatry Excludes Men Out of Heaven. And he gives 13 manifestations of soul idolatry. Let me encourage you to take this with you this week. Let me encourage you to put it up somewhere where you would see it. This has been edited and modernized a little since it was written in the 1600s. But this is a helpful diagnostic tool for us as we think about what are the things that we may have enshrined in our hearts that we worship, that we esteem more than God. Well, look at these 13 things really quickly. Esteem, number one. That which we most highly value or esteem, we make our God. Diagnostic question, what do you value? Write it down. What do you value most? Be willing to be honest enough to answer that question. A second diagnostic question, what are you most mindful of? That is, where does your mind go when it has nothing else to focus on? When those finals are finished, when that test is done, when that paper's been turned in and you have the freedom to think about other things, where does your mind go? What are you mindful of? What occupies your mind, your attention? That which we most remember and are mindful of, we make our God. 
Who, what are you most mindful of? Can you answer that? It's a good question. Should point to what our idol may be. Number three, intention. That which we are most motivated by. Where our intentions are focused, we make our God. What is your primary motivation or chief end in life? If it is anything other than God, his glory, it's an idol. Number four, resolution. What are you most resolved for? The thing that you're most resolved to do is what you will worship as God. Number five, love. What do you love the most? That which we love, we worship as God. For love is an act of soul worship. Who or what do you most love? Number six, trust. What do you trust in? That which we most trust, we make our God. For confidence and dependence is an act of worship, which the Lord calls for us as due only to himself. Where have you placed your trust? How about your hope? How about your fear? What is it that you fear? The thing you fear most you worship as God. What do you hope in? What do you desire, number nine? What we desire we worship as our God. What do you desire the most? If you want to meditate on this, let me encourage you to read John Piper's helpful book called Desiring God. Number ten, what do you delight in? That which we most delight and rejoice in, that we worship as God. What do you delight in? Number 11, zeal. What are you zealous for? What, what gets the most energy or excitement in your heart and in your mind and in your life? What are you zealous for? For such a zeal is an act of worship due only to God. Number 12, what are you grateful for? Most grateful for? And lastly, what do you lust after? What do you desire? These are helpful diagnostic questions. Let me encourage you to take these with you. Let me encourage you to use this in your discipling relationships with one another. This is so helpful to continue to be thinking about because you'll find throughout your life that your idols may change and your heart that is that idol-making factory will put up different idols in the shrine in your heart and you'll be tempted to worship. It may change. Another helpful diagnostic separate from David Clarkson, what produces the strongest reaction from you? If you have kids, your kids may be able to answer this question for you. What is it that produces the strongest reaction from you? Notice that in uh, Acts 19, the strong reaction when idols were challenged or when idols were being slain or destroyed, there was a huge reaction. There was chaos. There was a whole... A mob, a riot in Ephesus when those idols were challenged. Well, what produces a riot in your soul, in your life? What produces the strongest reactions when something in your life is challenged? It may be that that thing that causes such a strong reaction is a, that reaction is a clue to what that idol is that you cling to that's being threatened. As we think about what this means for us, this means that we need to be, verse 14, fleeing from idolatry. And we need to be doing whatever it takes to uproot the idols that are there 
enshrined in our hearts and ensuring that we don't allow any competition for our delight, for our joy, for our worship, so that we are devoted to the one and true God. Friends, let me encourage us to do whatever it takes to, to root out those idols, to expose them, to be willing to swallow our pride and have someone else ask us the hard questions. Perhaps those idols are in the recesses of our hearts that we're hiding them even from those who know us the best. That we are delighting in those things, perhaps even in the dark. Let me encourage you to bring those things to the light. And do whatever it takes to not be led astray by our idols, held captive by Satan and his demons. And the concern here is perhaps having to face our jealous God in wrath rather than in salvation. That leads us to our final point, our second and final point, the jealous God. The command is to flee from the worship of idols, knowing that we will face all the jealous God. Look at verse 19 again. What am I saying then, that food sacrificed to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No, but I do say that what they sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot share in the Lord's table and the table of demons. Or are we provoking the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Paul here says that our God is a jealous God. At one point in the Old Testament, he says that his name is jealous. Our God is jealous for his name and for his glory and for his worship. And he is concerned that he is the one true God, is the only one who is worshipped. He will not tolerate any other God to vie with his worship and his attention. Now this may seem a little confusing for us. Sometimes it seems confusing. Why does the God who needs nothing care that everybody has to worship him? Sounds kind of like a selfish preoccupation with himself. But if we think that way, we are attempting to understand God simply on human terms. God is not like us. He is as unlike us as he can be. He is the only one true God and the only one worthy of such worship. And the reality is, on the one hand, there is no other that deserves such worship and praise. Deserves such delight and attention. On the flip side, for our sake, there is nothing else that can truly satisfy. When we praise God and worship Him and Him alone, we will be able to actually be satisfied and find the delight that we were created for. Because we were created like planets revolving around a sun or a star. We were created to know God, to love Him, to know Him, to delight in Him and to worship Him and no other. When we attempt to turn anything else into God, not only are we spreading lies about who our God is in terms of what he's worthy of and spreading lies about these other things, we are failing to find our satisfaction and the only one who can give it. C.S. Lewis talks about this in his book on the Psalms. He said he was surprised to find that there was praise everywhere in the world. And the most obvious fact about praise, or worship, but the 
the specific reality of praise was everywhere in the world. He used to think of praise being like a compliment or like approval. He never noticed that it was spontaneously flowing out onto anything that was delighted in. If you'll notice, as you talk with other people, you will be praising things, praising people, talking about the things that are praiseworthy. He says that the world rings with praise, lovers praising their beloved, readers praising their favorite books, walkers praising the countryside, players praising their favorite game. Hey, did you see the game? Did you see the highlights? Praise of the weather, praise of food and drink. And he says, this is what helped him to understand the reality that praising God was a natural thing and that it not only was an expression of what it is that we delight in, it actually added to the joy. And what Lewis says is God invites us to praise Him, to delight in Him, and ultimately to do even more, to worship Him, because we will increase in our joy and delight when we do it. We have been created by God to praise and to worship Him. And in doing it, we will find our greatest joy. Anything else that you pursue as an ultimate thing or an end in itself beyond God will turn on you and will lead ultimately to misery. And even more, that's in this life, it will one day lead to wrath and judgment. That's what Paul highlights here at the end of our section. Or are we provoking the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? The concern here is that some may think that they are Christians, and yet with their flexibility in worshiping idols, participating in idols, they are actually going to be confused into thinking that they're Christians when in fact they are going to face the jealous wrath of God. Now, this language of jealousy is language from the Old Testament prophets. Language of spiritual adultery. And language, we'll talk about next week as well, that when we worship anything other than God, we commit a kind of spiritual adultery. And our God is a jealous God who will punish those who abandon Him. And yet, He is a loving God who has come in the person of Jesus Christ in order to bring us back into a right relationship with Him, an eternal loving relationship that can only happen through what Christ has done for us on the cross. You see, our jealous God is a loving God, and He's jealous for His own praise. But He is a loving God who has come, entered into our world through the person of Jesus Christ in order to bring, through Christ, sinners like you and me to be the bride of Christ, to be reunited with Him to enter into an eternal love relationship where we will know Him, enjoy Him, delight in Him, and serve Him forever in the most satisfying of relationships that could ever be. Our jealous God is our saving God who loved sinners through Christ and entered into our world in order to bring us into an eternal love relationship with Him. If you're here and you're not a Christian, this is the most important thing that you'll hear today. 
Our God is a jealous God, jealous for his praise, but jealous for our love. If we are to love anything other than him, that love will not satisfy. But at the end of the day, we will face his wrath. But if we turn to him, we will have an eternal love relationship created through faith in Christ. Uh, One commentator writes, In Paul's time, sharing table, dining with someone, was the primary social symbol of acceptance, of belonging, and of mutuality. That's why so much of Jesus' teaching is in a dining context. I want to end in Revelation chapter 3 as we conclude. The letter to Laodicea. The angel of the church in Laodicea receives this. Thus says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the originator of God's creation. I know your works. You were neither hot nor cold. I wish you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I am going to vomit you out of my mouth. The jealous God is jealous for true worship. And look at what these people say, verse 17. You say, I'm rich. You say, I'm wealthy and need nothing. And you don't realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I advise you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you may be rich. White clothes so that you may be dressed and your shameful nakedness not be exposed. As many as I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be zealous and repent. I'm not sure what it is that you may worship today. I'm not sure what idols may be erected in the shrines of your hearts. But notice what Jesus says here at the end of this letter. See, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him. And he with me. Jesus. The one who is most offended by our idolatry is inviting any who would come to invite him in and to enter into an eternal relationship where we will participate in an eternal love relationship around his table forever, enjoying and participating in his love forever. If we will turn from our sins and trust in Christ. Friends, let's be the kind of church community that is willing to call out idols where we see them willing to open up our own hearts to see what may be there so that we may flee from idolatry and worship the true God who is jealous. Let's let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you. You are a jealous God and that you will not tolerate false worship. It is good of you to not tolerate it. Lord, whatever it is that we may idolize today, whether an actual literal idol, whether idols of money or security, of comfort or esteem, of material possessions, of love or pleasure. Lord, pray that you would help us to turn from idols, to flee from them, to worship you and you alone. Lord, do this so that we may have eternal joy with you forever and with Christ and his people. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope you were encouraged and blessed by the word. We'd like to invite you to join us for Sunday worship. If you would like to know our service time and further information, please visit us online at www.emmanueloc.com. And so, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Amen. Amen.